Thank you, Veronica, for reading today. A very good morning to you, again, and a very happy Christmas on this second Sunday in the Christmas season. We're still in the Christmas season. And uh, I know when Tom first asked me to, if I would like to preach today, I of course said, yes, it'd be a privilege. And at the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, uh, about looking forward to preaching an uplifting, joyful post-Christmas message. And then a few weeks ago, the reading for today was sent round. It's the one we just heard. I have to admit, my heart slightly sank a bit. For this story isn't pleasant, is it really? After all, at this time of year, on New Year's Day, who wants to hear about young infants being torn out of their mother's arms and slain to death by a despot king? Let's face it, it kind of spoils the warmth of the Christmas story, doesn't it? After all, we don't see this scene on many of our Christmas cards, do we? Much rather just stick to like the fluffy sheep and donkeys and those scenes of a silent night over at Bethlehem. And I have to admit, it did occur to me that you know, Tom's away, isn't he, today? Our vicar's away today and that maybe I could get away with just changing the reading <laughs> to something a bit more joyful. Maybe we could do a New Year's quiz. You wouldn't tell on me, would you? No, don't answer that question. But then I realised, of course, that if we did that, we'd be skipping over the true Christmas story. And in doing so, we'd be leaving the greatest gift of Christmas, God's presence and hope, left wrapped, unwrapped and unopened. But you see, whilst this Christmas story is about joy and wonder, it is also about pain and sadness. Matthew's gospel doesn't begin with once upon a time in a far off land, as if it was some fairy tale or Disney movie. For as horrific as this story may seem, it's a reminder that Christmas happened in the real world in which we live in. So this morning we're going to stick to this passage, as hard as that may be, perhaps we wrestle with it, but spend a bit of time thinking through these verses and what they mean for us today in 2023. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, not just a new day, but this new year ahead. We thank you for faithfully bringing us through this past year and before your, your unfailing love. We thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. And we pray again as we open it up again this morning that we may see and understand more of your amazing grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I suspect you know how this part of the Christmas story begins, isn't it? How the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they kind of knocked on the door of King Herod, who was the ruler of Judah at this time and said, where is the one born king of the Jews? Well, you can imagine how saying something like that is going to alarm the person actually sitting on the throne. In fact, if you look back at verse three of this chapter, 
We are told that Herod and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Now, we, there's a lot of things that could be said about King Herod, but the one thing to know about him was that he really wanted to prove that he was the king of the Jews. That was the title given to him by the Roman Senate. Of course, the problem was he was a bit of an imposter. He was only partly Jewish, an Edomite, and he had no legitimate right to rule. He was only promoted to the position by the Romans. So if there was a true legitimate king coming, then we can sort of understand a bit why he was so disturbed and terrified. And then this morning we pick up the story from verse 13, when Joseph gets that wake-up call in the middle of the night from an angel, warning him to flee immediately to Egypt. Let's read that again. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. See, the reality of Christmas is that instead of welcoming God's presence on earth, the world actually opposed it. It's shocking, isn't it? That probably before Jesus even spoke his first words, that the first instinct is to get rid of him, to wipe him out. His mere presence is a threat to Herod. I wonder how many people perhaps come to church at Christmas time only because they think it's the only safe time to be in church, to hear and sing those familiar carols about a harmless baby wrapped in a manger. Also seems so cute and harmless, doesn't it? After all, an ordinary baby threatens no one, except that this is no ordinary baby. And uh, what I find interesting is that in a kind of a warped way, Herod understood that. He knew what Jesus' coming meant, even as a baby. He understood the implications. If you think about it, he knew that Jesus had been born. The wise men had told him that. He also knew where he was born. The religious leaders told him that. He understood that Israel's true king meant the end of the line for any puppet kings such as he. He knew he would have to give up his throne. Of course, Herod wasn't about to let a little baby do that or interfere with his career, position or power. But there's an unsettling truth here, isn't it? That Herod's reaction to Jesus is in a sense a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying, he is the king. Then one has to give in, right? Only one person can sit on a throne. And you see, this part of the Christmas story reminds us that in every heart, my heart, your heart, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that rejects Jesus' authority. We want to remain on the throne of our own lives we want to stay in control. We want to continue to do things our own way. We'd rather meet God on our own terms and submit to him unconditionally. 
and let him rule over all areas and every moment of our lives. The Bible says we are naturally hostile to God. That's why, isn't it, the world sometimes finds it offensive to know that we have all sinned and that we all need saving and that we can't save ourselves through good works or through religious duty. This story is a reminder that Jesus came not to bring peace, but to bring the world a choice, a choice between life and death, between heaven and hell. We have to make a choice. We cannot have a little bit of darkness and a little bit of light. It's either all or nothing. Either you are in the world or you are in Christ. So as we begin this new year, are we prepared to submit our throne to King Jesus? Or will we try to hold on to it? And as this story shows, it's futile to stand against God. God will always win. For even though the authorities do eventually kill and crucify Jesus, they couldn't destroy him. What happened to Herod? Well, apparently within three years of Jesus' birth, he ended up dead. The crazy thing is that Herod was so desperately trying to hold on to a kingdom that wasn't even his to keep anyway. So the real question is, will we lay aside our kingdoms, kingdoms that won't last anyway, and worship the child who was born whose kingdom will last forever. Perhaps the only way we'll be able to give up our kingdoms and worship the true king is if we are captivated by the beauty of that king, the one announced by the angels, worshipped by shepherds. You see, when we really see him, that will change everything about how we live and who we worship. Let's move on to the next couple of verses, verses 14 and 15. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. We hear much today about refugees from war and persecution. But here we see Jesus himself was once a refugee driven out of his homeland. What I find really interesting is this quote that Matthew gives from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's just one line, isn't it? And we can easily miss the significance of course, for Matthew's first readers, who were, of course, Jewish, they would have known exactly what story Matthew was referring to here. It's a bit like if I was to give you the first line of a carol, a little town of Bethlehem, you'd probably know the next line, how still we see thee lie. You'd probably know more lines than that. Well, here, let me read out the first quote from Hosea 11. The first half of this verse. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him 
And then out of Egypt I called my son. See, the son here in Hosea is not referring to Jesus, but Israel. This quote is about when God brought the nation of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And the problem is Hosea goes on to say that the more God called Israel, the further it went away from God. Israel was unruly, had gone off the rails. So back to Matthew then. It seems that he wants us to see that Jesus, the true son, is unlike Israel. For Jesus instead will be utterly faithful. Then our story continues in verse 16, how when Herod realised they'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem who were under two years, who were two years old and under. Herod, in his pride, thought he could outdo God by killing all the boys in Bethlehem. And this reaction is not out of character for Herod. I was reading up about him and apparently this was a ruler who ordered the killing of his favourite wife, had two of his sons strangled on suspicion of treason, and his brother-in-law met with a drowning accident when he became too popular. And just five days before his death, he ordered the arrest of many citizens and decreed that they be executed on the day of his death just to guarantee a proper atmosphere of mourning in the country. Apparently Emperor Augustus is reported to have said it is safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his family. So you can see then why this kind of minor extermination of a few young toddlers in Bethlehem would prove no problem for him. How many boys were killed, we don't know. Some suggest it may have been a mere, a mere 20 to 40, considering the size of Bethlehem at the time. I call that still one too many. And Matthew continues with this quote from the book of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Again, Matthew isn't just pulling out bits of quotes from anywhere. And to make any sense of this, we need to understand the context of these uh, verses. Gets quite involved and I'll spare you the full history but in short it sits in the context of of Israel's rejoicing in their return from exile and this grief is but a moment before joy Uh, I've been actually been reading Jeremiah and uh, as you probably know it's not the most cheerful of books in the Bible it's actually about God declaring his judgment on a sinful people But right in the middle of Jeremiah, right where this quote is from, is a section filled with joy and light. It's where the prophet shifts from declaring God's judgment to promises of hope. Verse 34 of this uh, same chapter in Jeremiah says this, No longer will they teach their neighbour, 
or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Reminds me, uh, about 12 years ago, a friend sent me uh, this Christmas card, and I kept it because uh, it has these wonderful words. Uh, you may have heard them before, uh, but they're to the point. It reads, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a saviour. You see, the only solution for the world is a saviour who will save people from their sin. We need this saviour more than anything else in life. Nothing matters more. You see, this same baby born in Bethlehem would grow up as a man and one day carry a rugged cross down Jerusalem streets and out to Golgotha, where he died as the ultimate sacrifice. Well, finally this morning, I think this part of the Christmas story reminds us that if God is to be with us, as we so often say at this time of year, our Lord Emmanuel, then he needs to be where the pain is. When God entered the world, he didn't wait for it to be safe. God didn't make it easier for Jesus than it would be for anyone else. God didn't send Jesus to a rich family that lived in a palace. God entered this world, the real world, our world, just as it is, with all its evils and dangers. He came not to destroy this broken, sinful world, but to redeem it. And that no matter how hard Herod tried, God's plan of salvation would be unstoppable. So this means that even though we live in a world where evil still sits on the throne, where children are still being murdered, and weeping still exists, we know that because of Jesus, we know how the story ends, that one day he will deliver us from death to where there will be no more weeping or crying. And we will no longer be in exile in this world, but remain in his glorious presence. I was reading, uh, I was listening rather to the radio this morning. I don't know if anyone heard it. It was all about the hymn that we sang earlier, Amazing Grace. And it has this verse. I don't think it was in that song we, in the version we just sang, but the, uh, the full version has this verse. It says, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. What will 2023 bring our way? Who knows? 
But we do know this, that Jesus enters this new year with us. And we know that no matter what comes our way, whether in times of laughter or in times when we cry, in times of celebration or in times of suffering, he's faithful and be with us all the way to the end of the story when God's light extinguishes darkness forever. God is not just with us, but he's also for us, promising to be with us and bring us to the other side. That in time we might know the fullness of joy that is life in Christ. So perhaps it's not quite as bad message to hear on this first day of the new year after all, is it? Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray as we begin another year, perhaps with anxiety about what it may bring, we pray that you will guide us and help us to seek you more. And Father, we pray for your forgiveness for when we behave like Herod and when we see Jesus as a threat. Father, pray that as we begin this new year, help us to see Jesus and to worship him and truly the experience, the power of Jesus coming to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.